Today we're in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 48. It's a massive, long section, um, and originally the plan was to do it in two weeks, but the week I had a back spasm, threw us all out with the the calendar. So we're doing it in one, uh, but actually by doing it in one, the Lord helped me to see some fresh insight into the passage I hadn't seen before. So I I think we can do it. I think it will bless us. Um, And we're we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically Jesus' manifesto of what it looks like to be a citizen of his new kingdom. The kind of the age of Israel is coming to an end and Jesus is establishing a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, he's outlining to the new followers what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. And he sets the bar, as we saw last week, incredibly high. He takes all the Old Testament law and says, I'm not getting rid of it, um, I'm actually fulfilling it. And then this week, he's going to explain what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus who follows his fulfilled law. So let's read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. I'll actually start at verse 20 because I think it'll help us. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one eye of well, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a, a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. I used to have a gym membership. Um, I no longer have it. Well, I sort of have it, but I keep putting on pause because I, I can't be bothered to go to the gym, <laughs> which you can maybe tell. But anyway, I don't go to the gym anymore. But when you go to the gym, there's generally two types of people at the gym. There's the people at the gym that are super serious about it. They've got their program, they've got their diet, and they are sweating, grunting, yelling. They're moving from one task to the next with purpose because they're there because they actually want to get fit. They want to get strong. They want to be healthy. Yeah. Then there's the other person at the gym who wants to go to the gym so that they feel good that they went to the gym. They're not so concerned with actually getting fit. They just want to feel good that they were there. And you can normally spot them because they've got all the gear and it's all brand new and hardly used. <laughs> they've got the, the Lycra or whatever. You've got the, the full kit, Nike, everything, the brand new shoes. They've got the tech, the gadgets. They're monitoring their heart rate. They've got the bottle, the towel, everything. They're ready to go. But if you watch them in their whole time at the gym, they're not sweating. They're moseying on about from machine to machine. They're watching the TV more than they're actually watching you know, their intensity. And those type of people feel great about themselves when they leave the gym, but they leave completely unchanged. Last week, we saw that Jesus gathers together his new disciples, and he says to them, look, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But then he tells them that there's a certain group of people, these scribes and Pharisees. They're the ones that have been going around teaching everyone how to obey the law of God. But Jesus basically says about these guys that they are the second category of the people at the gym. They look like they've got it all together. They look like they're doing the right thing. They've got the gear, the tassels, you know, they've got the things memorized, they've, they've got the tech, but they're leaving unchanged. 
the type of righteousness of the Pharisees is all show and no substance. And that is why Jesus says to his new disciples in the kingdom gym, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, here's the reality. It's possible to look like an awesome Christian, but be a million miles away from God. You can have the right gear, the right Bible. You can be in the right places. You can be here on a Sunday afternoon. You can do the right things, say the right answers, but be hopelessly lost and shut out of God's eternal and awesome kingdom. The only way to get in, the only way to be in the kingdom is to have this new, greater righteousness. So what is that greater righteousness? Well, as we saw last week, John Stott defined it like this. Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. Only those who go far beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees will be true subjects of God's kingdom. Those who can do no more than simply keep the rules, however conscientiously, haven't even started as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. Jesus, in that section I read, outlines six kind of antithetical statements. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in those statements, he's defining the difference between this pharisaical righteousness and the true righteousness that he came to bring. When he says, you've heard that it was said, he's not contradicting the Old Testament scriptures. He's contradicting the teaching from these Pharisees. He's contradicting their interpretation of the law. And then he comes authoritatively to fulfill it by going to the deeper and even greater righteousness that he has. He then kind of ends each one with sort of, most of them with this illustrative application points. And so as I've studied this passage and had this question in my mind, what is this greater righteousness that Jesus is alluding to? I think you can actually tie those six things into three pairs of two. And they're going to be my three points for today. Point number one, the greater righteousness and our thoughts. Okay, The first two, I think, relate to our thought and our heart. Point number two, the greater righteousness and our words. And point number three, the greater righteousness and our deeds. And I think what, this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And it's a, it's a jarring message because we're all about grace and, you know, it's in our name, sovereign grace. But here Jesus is getting something else done. He's trying to show the law, the high standards of the civic responsibilities of someone who wants to join the kingdom of heaven. And it's going to lead us to a point where we go, I cannot 
I, I cannot get in. And we're actually going to end by taking communion together to rejoice in the gospel. It'll be a beautiful moment. But the one point that I think Jesus is trying to teach is this. The greater righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness of the heart first. Point number one. The greater righteousness and our thoughts. You see, Jesus' first example of greater righteousness goes straight to the point, really. He goes to the innermost being, our thoughts and our heart. You see, the Pharisees, like the people in the gym, were more concerned with their external righteousness, the external appearance of like wanting to look like a gym type of person and feeling good about their jimminess, <laughs> their righteousness before God. But Jesus wants to go in and dismantle that pretense. He wants to show that true righteousness comes from the inside out, not the outside in. And so for these first two, Jesus actually takes two of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. And he engages with the Pharisaical teaching on it and shows the true meaning of the law. He shows them what greater righteousness looks like. Let's look at the first one, murder. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, that's true. Um, don't kill people. You know, most you know, societies have got that as one of the, the normal things. Sadly, our society um, says don't kill people unless they're in the womb, and then it's totally legal and fine. We pretend like we actually believe in that law, but we really don't because of the number of abortions that are permitted in our country. It's, it's, you know, it's terrible. But in that culture, the, the, everyone believed that. Don't kill people. But the, right, the, the Pharisees stopped there. They were teaching people, you are a good person. You are a man or woman of outstanding character if you have never killed someone. <laughs> so you could you know, go to synagogue that week and be like, sweet, <laughs> didn't murder anyone this week. I can stand before God with a clear conscience. But then Jesus tears it down. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, the real standard, the real point of the law was not that you wouldn't kill people. It's that you wouldn't even have anger and frustration and fury towards them. The murderous rage in you is enough, Jesus says, to send you to hell. You never have to pick up a, a weapon. You never have to lie in wait. All you have to do is sit there with a straight face, seething with fury towards one of God's creatures, wishing evil upon them. And you have committed murder. The second example he gives is that of adultery. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery means when you're married, to have um, sex with someone who is outside of your marriage. So anyone else, right? Okay. So the Pharisees kind of explain that basically like, as long as you don't get caught in bed with a woman, you're a righteous man or woman. All you have to do is not cheat on your husband or wife and you're righteous. Woohoo! So you go into synagogue that week, and you're like, great, 
Uh, no, didn't sleep with anyone else. Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm right before God. That's all that they taught. But Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and you could say, or a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes the command to its logical endpoint. It's not that you're not meant to sleep with someone. It's meant you're meant to actually love your bride or your husband and only have eyes for them. The Pharisees had this easy standard. Just you can you can look as much as you want, just don't touch. And Jesus says, No, no, no. The greater righteousness is one where you don't even lust in your heart. So Jesus' standards are much higher than the Pharisees for diagnosing sin. He looks at our very hearts, our very thought life. But not only are his standards higher, unattainably higher, but his solutions are far more serious as well. They demonstrate not just a, an avoidance of a particular sin, but a hatred of it. In those examples of the murder, um, he, he gives this kind of scenario of, of you know, a, a brother that has something against you or an adversary that's an enemy that has a law case against you. And in both of those scenarios, you're not even the one that's necessarily angry towards them. But so high is the standard of relationship in the kingdom of heaven that you are to go out of your way to restore fellowship with someone else who may have murderous thoughts against you. The solution to the problem of anger goes even to the extent of reconciling with people who are angry with you. Or with lust, he says, if you are experiencing lustful tendencies and situations, it is better. It would be way better to lop off a hand or stick your finger into your eyeball and gouge it out. It would be way better for you to do that. Way better than to be ruled by lust, led into death by the sin of lustful temptation and thrown into eternal separation from God. His solutions are dramatic because the nature of sin is dire. The consequences are eternal and horrific. And so when Jesus gets into this explanation of the law, he takes it to the nth degree and shows you can't just look righteous on the outside. You have to be utterly righteous on the inside as well. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes basically said, you are a righteous person in our community if you don't kill and you don't cheat on your wife. But you can be murderously angry in your heart all you like. And by their own standards, you could look at porn every night. You could do whatever you want in your heart as long as you don't do it with your hands. And Jesus tears it all down. Because they were all concerned with external righteousness. But when God looks at us, he sees right through our show. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when they're choosing a king, the Lord says this to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What does the Lord see when he looks at your heart? What does the Lord see when he looks upon my heart? How is your anger presently? Are you prone to seething fury and contempt, road rage, sports rage, holding grudges, fantasizing about the demise of someone that you're against, wishing evil upon people? How's your heart of lust? Where are your eyes going? Where's your internet browser going? Where's your mind going? Even if you're not doing any of those things, what are you doing with your fantasies and your thought life? Have you already run away from your husband or wife in your heart, even though you're too scared to do it with your feet? You see, when the Lord looks upon us, we can't hide. We can't be like those gym people that look like they got it all together. Because he sees the innermost being. If we were to project all of your thoughts and heart motivations and what actually goes on in your head next week at church up on the TV there, (laughs) would you flee the country? I know you can't do that, but that's what I'd want to do. Because this standard, this standard, I just don't have words for it. I can't stand up to it. I don't know if you can. The greater righteousness of the kingdom is a righteousness of the heart first. It's point number one, the greater righteousness in our thoughts. Now Jesus turns to the greater righteousness and our word. The greater righteousness in our word. You see, the next two sets of antitheses there reflect primarily on our word, our, our kind of what, not just like the kind of content of what we say, but who we are as a person saying these things, when we make covenants and when we make promises. So we have our thoughts, now we have our word. The first relates to divorce. Maybe a sensitive topic for some depending on your background and experience. And these are hard words from Jesus. And I can explain in more detail my position on divorce if you'd like later, but I'm just going to let Jesus' words speak for themselves today. It was also said, Matthew 5.31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You see, the Pharisees, in the old way of determining what was righteous for the community of Israel, the old way was... You can be a righteous man in our community if you divorce your wife. All you need to do is get the paperwork correct. If you've got the paperwork, even though you've left your wife, even though you made a covenant with her, even though you abandon her, you are righteous in our community if you've got the paperwork right. Now, this law was never commanded in the Old Testament to have divorce. It was a concession by Moses to what was already happening in Israel at the time. 
And so when he was regulating what to do with divorce, he was trying to explain to them, look, if a divorce happens and you send out your wife and someone else marries her, you can't marry her again because she's been defiled. That's the point of this command, let her be out with a certificate of divorce. But the Pharisees have retooled it so that they can remain righteous and get what they want. A younger model. Bit annoyed at their wife? Divorce her. Everyone signs it off. Yeah, the boys, we're good. We get a new one. They go on so far, some teachers, to say that if, if she displeased you in any way, burnt the food, or just became unattractive in your sight, that was grounds for divorce. And they'd clap each other on, go to synagogue, and be totally fine. Instead, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. The assumption that she has to be remarried because there's no Centrelink in that time. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, Jesus is saying, your word matters. Your word matters. You made a covenant before God. You are joined, husband and wife, in a one flesh union. You cannot walk away from that just because it's inconvenient to you anymore. The only thing that breaks that covenant is you breaking it through adultery or her breaking it through adultery or death. Except for that, the covenant stands. And by you divorcing her and forcing her to remarry, you are making her commit adultery. You are forcing her to cheat on you so that she can live and survive. Remember, in this time, adultery was punishable by death. They were no longer practicing it practically, most likely. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying, you are forcing someone to commit a capital offense. How wicked your words are. The greater righteousness in our words. Secondly, he moves on to another expression of our words, our oaths. Verse 33 Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. That's Leviticus 19. And then he adds another one in. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Numbers 30 verse 2. So he's saying, look, here's this old way, this old command. And in their community, um, your word, you didn't have like these contracts so much. It was your word that mattered. And so what you would do to bolster like a deal or some kind of thing is you'd make an oath or a vow towards God. So an oath is like a contract between you and you invoke God or a vow was something you promised to do. But the Pharisees had twisted this idea, which already was like having oaths is not the ideal, right? You're meant to just say, I will do it and do it. You don't need to make an oath toward God or the temple or anything like that. You're just meant to be a man or woman of integrity. So the oaths was already a concession to our fallenness and community. But the Pharisees take it to a whole new level. They take this idea of oaths and they made all these extra rules. Like um, in, in Matthew 23, basically... Jesus gives this explanation. He says to you, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for what is greater, the gold or the temple that he has made the gold sacred? And you say, If someone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on that altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. 
For which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? They'd come up with this sneaky way of making your word not have to have any meaning. You could, oh yeah, I swear by the temple, and, and then go, well, actually, I just swore by the temple, so I don't have to do what I said. And you trick people. And the Pharisee would say, yeah, he only swore by the temple, he doesn't have to do it. <laughs> they, they, their whole standard and, and standard of righteousness was not aimed at getting to the heart of the law. It was aimed at making it easier. They got their fit bits, but their heart rate isn't pumping. I, that wasn't in my notes. That was good. <laughs> and again, Jesus' solutions go to the highest level of righteousness. You made a covenant. You cannot break it. And he says, with your words, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's not saying you can never make an oath or have a contract. That's not the point. The point is, be a man of integrity, a woman of integrity with your word. You don't need all these tricks and ways of kind of swearing, oh, I have my fingers crossed, you know, I was touching wood while I swear, so it doesn't really count. You don't need all that. The righteous man or woman in the kingdom stands by his or her word unto death. The old way lets you get away with it on the technicality and still be considered righteous, and the new way obliterates it. How's your word? Are you sticking to your marriage covenant? Before God, the vows that you've made, are you living up to those vows? Go reread them. It's always daunting at a wedding, joyful and daunting. I was at Prab and Joe's wedding and you hear the vows again. And you're like, oh, I promised that before God and man that I would do that. Lord, help me. How are your promises? Do your kids or friends or even people in your growth group. Do you say, I'll pray for you? Don't do it. Oh, we'll do this. Don't follow through. The greater, the greater righteousness of the kingdom is a righteousness of the heart first. In your heart, you want to be truthful because God is truthful. In your heart, you want to keep promises because God is a promise keeping and faithful God. And so the greater righteousness wants to be just like God. Point number three, the greater righteousness and our deeds. So Jesus is going from the thought life to the what we say, who we are in our kind of covenants and oaths. And then he ends by looking at our deeds, what we do practically, what we kind of actually have to get out there and make happen and he looks at two concepts retaliation and love or, or hatred you know we're going to see there so let's look at the first one retaliation Matthew 5 verse 38 you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth again the the pharisaical kind of teaching was actually taking what was civic law, so this was a law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that was used in Israel 
to restrain retaliation so that you wouldn't go beyond what was done to you. And it was to be done in the courts of law. So if, you know, Mick came and stole my car, we found Mick in my car. He's like, Mick, you don't need a grand carnival. There's just the two of you at this point in time. You stole my car. I take you to court. In the court, they say, well, because Mick stole the car and trashed it, he has to provide you with a new one. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a carnival for a carnival, right? <laughs> okay. Or if Mick chopped off my arm, then we chop off his arm. Yeah, uh, you know, Mick, he's that kind of guy. He's <laughs> now, that was all to be done so that I wouldn't, you stole my car, I burn your entire family to the ground. That was the whole point of that law, was to restrain my evil. It was to restrain that kind of retributive justice that is plagues tribal communities around the world even today. But the Pharisees had taken it to be like, well, you can just administer that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you just go for it. In interpersonal relationships, it's, it's fine. The Bible says it, the law says it, you can do it. Instead, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. This is hard teaching. Jesus says, no, 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 no retaliation. Even more, no resistance. But even more than that, radical generosity instead. No retaliation, no resistance, even more radical generosity to replace unkindness towards you. Look at the illustrations he gives. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The, the right cheek slap was a major way of just like poning someone and making them shamed and basically pulling their pants down. Um, it would be a kind of equivalent. If someone dacked you, maybe don't. Yeah, that's not, okay, that's not in my notes. Um, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, well, let him have your cloak as well. Someone wants to take you to court, give him everything. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This is the example of Roman, so Israel was occupied by Roman soldiers and the Roman soldiers could just commandeer you and say, all right, Richard, come with me for a mile, carry all my stuff. And you could imagine a Jew, like, I'm in my holy land, my God, no, I'm not doing that, I don't want to do that, I hate you, go away, like, let's kill the Romans. And Jesus says, once you get to the, second, uh, the first mile, go to the, you know, the commander and say, want to go another? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <laughs> do not retaliate, do not resist, but even more, be radically generous in return. This isn't saying there's no place for war, there's no place for government. You just read the rest of the New Testament, Romans 13. There's no, it's not saying there's no place for police and everything like that. But Jesus' standard is saying, don't be one who's like ready to get yours back. Instead, be ready, like God the Father is, to be generous. And that's where he goes in the final one, love your enemies. Chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the end point, and Jesus kind of goes to the most twisted of the Pharisees' teaching. The law never says, hate your enemy. The law says, you shall love your neighbor, and says nothing about hating your enemy. 
But what the Pharisees did, they came in and twisted it. They came in and said, well, if you're meant to love your neighbor, well, the opposite of that is hating your enemy. If they're your enemy, they're against God, therefore you can hate them. It's basically instituting racism. Your enemy is most likely someone from outside of Israel, and so it's anyone that's a non-Israelite. Instead of loving them like the law says, you meant you're allowed to hate them. And that's exactly what they did. Instead, Jesus says, but I say to you, and that's beautiful, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus goes in this final example to the heart of the law. The law of God given to Moses for the people of Israel and for us is summed up in love. Why? Because God is love. And to be holy like God is holy is to love like God loves. You see, most laws and even religions in the world are prohibitive. Don't do this and you're a good person. This last command, this is insane because this is an imperative to a moral good and the highest order. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor and love your enemy. The law of love not only prohibits negative action, it compels positive action. It is one thing to not retaliate. It's a total another thing to sacrificially serve your enemies and pray, pray blessings on those who hate you, like Christ did on the cross. Love not only feels toward another, love does. And we see God loves the world by sending copious beautiful and glorious droplets of rain that germinate seed that make crops grow and grass grows so that animals can eat it so they can be rich and well-fed. God loves the world by sending gracious gifts to those who hate Him and abhor Him and who rape His creatures and kill His creatures and slander His creatures and subjugate His creatures. Yet the rain falls The sun shines, the crops grow, and the animals fatten to even the worst human beings on earth. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is raising the bar of the kingdom of heaven. The total, the zenith, the top of the mountain, the apex of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is someone who loves your neighbor. Even if they're an enemy, even if they're annoying, even if they're totally against you. It's the summary of the law. The greater righteousness of the kingdom is a righteousness of the heart. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, 
a categorically new righteousness. And that leads to the final point, which I didn't give you at the beginning, but is this. Point number four, the greatest righteousness. Jesus ends this section on what it looks like to be in the kingdom, what it looks like to live in community. Notice all these commands are about community. They're about relationships and with one another and all the other people. He ends it by saying this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must have a greater righteousness in your very thoughts and hearts. Your inner motives, not just your outward actions, must be righteous. Your words must go beyond the rules and the legislation to the heart of the matter to be someone of integrity. And your deeds, you are to love people, even enemies like God loves them. The Pharisees focused on the outward, external, the letter of the law, but not the spirit. And that's us too, if we're honest. Wouldn't you love it if it was just a simple, like, don't do the big sins and you get into heaven? But Jesus ends by taking us all the way up to the very perfections of God Almighty and says, you, to be a citizen of my kingdom, you must be perfect. No blemish, no stain, no lapse. You must fulfill the law like I have fulfilled the law. But instead, you and I are murderers. You and I are adulterers. You and I are covenant breakers. You and I are vengeful. And you and I are haters. And so what hope can we possibly have when we compare ourselves to this sermon, to these antitheses? We need a righteousness of the heart that none of us can possibly obtain. We need to be perfect. Our only hope, and it's been the message of this entire service, our only hope is is if we can receive this righteousness from someone else. We can never generate it ourselves. We can never... Bridge the gap between us and God. We must receive perfect righteousness on our account. Otherwise, all of us will stand before Almighty God and He will condemn us as murderers, adulterers, vengeful people. We won't be able to stand. None of us can say, hey, but I did do that one thing and I was decent. You'll say, sure, but you are this. This is who you are. Paul summarizes it like this in Romans chapter 10. In the book of Romans, he's been trying to show them how by trying to obtain your own form of righteousness by working really hard and just doing it all will leave you outside of Christ. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about Israel who does not believe in Christ yet. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. So you can have a zeal for God, but not be saved. But their zeal is not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So it's possible to go to the gym, have all the gear, do it all, look right, but in the end have no effect, be a million miles away from God. And there may be someone in this room who is in that position today. You have tried to establish a righteousness of your own, a good enough righteousness. You are not saved. You will not go to heaven. You will be shut out of the kingdom of heaven for all eternity if you have it on your own. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The way we receive this perfection that the Heavenly Father demands is through faith in Jesus Christ who spoke these words. We have to receive the righteousness. We cannot earn it. We cannot produce it. We cannot make it. He goes on. He says about this righteousness that, you know, we can't make it happen basically in verses 5 through 8. But to summarize in verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. (laughs) That is good news. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared legally righteous in God's sight, no longer a murderer, no longer an adulterer, no longer a covenant breaker, no longer unrighteous, but you are righteous in God's sight. And with the mouth, thoughts, words, One confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. (laughs) If you believe in Jesus Christ on that day, you can look face to face with God the Father and have no shame because your deeds of death and sin are paid for. (laughs) And you will have the very righteousness of Christ that he lived on your behalf. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our hope. This is our plea. This is our song. We call upon the Lord. We put all of our eggs in one basket that Jesus Christ the righteous fulfilled the law for us. And we will stand before God righteous on that final day. In order to fully experience the truth of the gospel, the Lord Jesus gave us a meal. And in this meal, he broke bread and passed it to his disciples and said, This is my body. It was broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. Then he passed around a cup of wine and he said, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. For all who reject their own righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness alone, I invite you to partake of this cup and to eat of this bread and to so consume your very Savior, not literally but figuratively, 
Receive his righteousness again. Rejoice in his broken body and shed blood and be in wondrous awe of the beauty of the gospel. I want you to reflect on this message as the elements are handed out and we can do that now. For some of us, you are not yet a Christian here today. You need to become a Christian right now. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your unrighteousness and receive him. Do it now in this time. For those of us who are Christians and you know you've blown it, you know and I know we've we've blown it, repent of your sin. Confess your sins to God and receive a fresh, fresh sense of your righteousness in Christ. Let's hand out the elements. You can reflect on that. There'll be silence and I'll stop speaking. There's also going to be on the screen a prayer that we're going to pray out loud together. You can read it in this time as well. I forgot to mention too, if you're not yet a Christian, please don't take the bread and the wine. Um, If you've already taken it, just let it be. Uh, This is just a meal for those who trust in Christ as their righteousness. Um, If you take the, the bread and the wine and you're not yet a Christian, you're drinking judgment on yourself. You're declaring that Christ is your Savior when He's not. You're declaring that He's the only one that can take sins and you haven't put your sins in His hand. Instead, receive Christ and then later you can receive communion. And we haven't done this, I don't think, as a church, prayed a prayer together. However, I think it can be helpful. And it actually follows in the next section. It says our thoughts, words and deeds, um, which is a very helpful prayer. Friends, let us confess with a humble boldness, our sin together to our almighty God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbors and to live for your honor and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you that you may be righteous. Take and eat this in joy. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ spilled for your murder and adultery your hatred and your retaliation and your imperfections. Drink this and rejoice. Let us pray and sing grace and peace. Oh, Father, we want to praise you with all of our being that this is true. This is our only hope, Lord, that this is true. Guilty sinners, made clean, vile rebels, made friends. We thank you that for anyone who comes to you, you take our burden and you bury it through the blood of your Son. We thank you that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. What an amazing, amazing mystery. Let us be surprised. Let us be in awe. Let us be full of joy in light of this truth. We love you, Lord. 
You are our hope. Your son is our righteousness. And in his name we pray. Amen.